David and his son Solomon were deeply invested in building a temple in which to worship and make covenants with their God. While the charge would eventually fall to Solomon, both men instead built a new legacy fraught with pride and sin. Their actions prove that it isn't the presence of or proximity to a temple, but spiritual strength from daily personal conversion that makes all the difference. I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit can teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. To lose spiritual strength, it is a very lonely, lonely feeling. There's a darkness, a hopelessness about it, and it is not a great place to be. You are not able to make good judgments. I, I feel like that's happened to me many times, and I kind of go up and down. But I think that you know that you're not able to make good decisions. You feel differently. You also feel like the Spirit is not with you. I feel like losing spiritual strength would be like losing the guidance in your life because the Holy Ghost and having Heavenly Father with you at all times is so important. And at this point, I'm making so many big decisions. So having Him there to help me is so much better. And not having that is just so much harder. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for being here today. Today's discussion topics come from various chapters from 2 Samuel and 1 Kings. The first topic we're going to discuss is lessons from David and Solomon. And the second topic is, the temple is the house of the Lord. And to help us with our discussion today, we want to first welcome back our friend and scholar, James Goldberg. Welcome, James. Always good to be here, Ben. <laughs> James is a writer and historian. And seated next to James, we have our special guest today, David Seeley. Welcome, David. It's good to be here. Uh, David is a professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University. So let's jump into our first topic, uh, lessons from David and Solomon. Uh, James, you want to give us a little uh, context that we can uh, work around here? Yeah, so as a reminder, we discussed last week how the prophet Samuel anointed David when he was very young to become king. Mm. So now we're finally reaching the point where David has become king, he's secured his, his rule, and, and we, we get to see what happens once he has that power and the, the difficulties of that position. Like James said, we have a king on the throne. He's beloved by the people. He's wise. He makes good decisions. He's established peace in the land. He's a great king. He's the ideal king, in fact. He's a spiritual man who's writing the Psalms. In fact, he writes 75 of the 150 Psalms. He decides that he wants to move the tabernacle to Jerusalem, his newly conquered capital, city of Melchizedek, and then the Lord comes back and he says, no, it's not a good idea. And later in Kings and Chronicles, he will explain to David that because he's a man of war, symbolically, it's not fitting that he were to build the temple. But he says to David this, he says, but I will build you a house. And one of the meanings of house is a dynasty. And here we have the establishment of our third major covenant in the Old Testament, the covenant of David or the Davidic covenant. The Lord says to David, when thy days be fulfilled, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. I will set thy seed upon thee. And he promises him a son. And fittingly, David names his son Shlomo, Solomon, a peace. And he says that son uh, will continue the kingship here. And verse 16, thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever. Thy throne shall be established forever. A promise of unconditional kingship. 
And we know as the scriptures unfold that this promise is going to be fulfilled in one Jesus Christ. And in the Palm Sunday, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on his donkey, the people sing, Hosanna to the King, to the Son of David. Uh, Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And here they're acknowledging that the fulfillment of this Davidic covenant was to be seen in Jesus Christ. And then we learn that David, as in his greatness, was a type of Jesus. He was a shepherd. He was a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and he will be the ideal king, uh, the king who will, who, 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 who's promised to rule forever. He will be his descendant. That says a lot, you know, about David and the promise that he had. Doesn't stay that way. Uh, we're, we all know the fall of David is, I mean, I was traumatized when I first learned about it. It was really, really tough. Yeah, it's interesting. David is left. Um, kind of on his own at the same time there's this, this war happening and he sees Bathsheba. And if we remember, there, there were 10 commandments that were the, the first commandments Moses brought down and the 10th is thou shalt not covet. covet. And in this moment where, where he lingers and watches Bathsheba, you know, roofs are flat and open. So the king living in his nice cedar house uh, has an ability to kind of see out the moment where he lingers, there's this temptation and he breaks one commandment. Mm. And then that can easily slide as he tries to cover his sin until he ends up breaking about half of them. He commits adultery. Um, he tries to, in effect, bear false witness, mm -hmm. right? Create some fake evidence uh, so that he can make a different version of what happened. And then actually he ends up... Um, indirectly killing Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, mm -hmm. by having his nephew Joab, the general, put him in a situation where he's gonna die. And there's other people who die, right? Right. So there's all this collateral damage. So again, David, this great king, David, this, this spiritual harpist, breaks half the commandments, and God knows, and God is not happy with him. I was teaching this to a teacher's quorum one time, and when you're teaching David and Bathsheba to 14-year-olds, you learn a lot of things. And one of the things we learned is I asked my teachers, Coram, I said, what should David have done at that moment? One of my teachers said, he should have gone and played Nintendo. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea was that our lives unexpectedly have temptations come to us. And so we need a strategy. How are we going to deal with this? David has this gift of the harp. And talking with my teachers, Coram, we decided that that would have been something David could have done effectively uh, to head off uh, temptation, something that brings the Spirit of the Lord. I, I'd love to ask the audience, how do, you, how do you stay productive? What are some of the things that you do uh, to keep your mind and your body productive? Kirsten. I definitely find that when I, especially service, when I'm serving other people, that just... It, it helps me avoid temptation in so many different ways. And so it's so interesting how just these like simple acts of keeping ourselves busy by doing productive and, and helpful things can help us avoid the, the things that maybe we shouldn't be doing. One of the main purposes why we are here on this earth is to become as much like Christ as we possibly can. And so I think that it's really important for us to fill our time being busy and being productive, doing things that'll help bring us closer to Christ and becoming more like him while we are on this earth. And that's one thing that my family really tried to 
push with me and my siblings as we were growing up is that they always want us, wanted us to be developing our talents and serving others and just becoming as the best people that we can be so that we can then spread Christ's light to everyone. So I think that that's, that's one way that- Thank you, thank helps. you, Kirsten. Um, other thoughts? Brent, please. Decide beforehand. There are things you will not do. Um, when I was in junior high, I was on a bus and there were a couple of boys sitting behind me and they said, do you want to look at this magazine? I knew exactly what it was. And I said, no. And they kind of mocked me a little bit, but that choice has really affected my entire life. Thank you for sharing that, Brent. So is it safe to say that if David hadn't been in Jerusalem, he could have avoided this whole situation with Bathsheba? Right, yeah, that's an interesting question that, that if we'd been anxiously engaged, David could have avoided a temptation. And sometimes that's true in our lives. And then there's the question of what do we do after we've sinned? Okay. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we have these, these really powerful passages. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't say, can I get out of those? He doesn't say it was Bathsheba's fault. One of the most difficult things to say I have sinned before the Lord, I take accountability for this. You know, in, in ancient Israel, um, sacrifice was connected with the process of repentance. And David, in this Psalm, it's Psalm 51, verse 16, he says, I would give sacrifice, but that won't delight you. And then David says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. And then David says, but then sacrifices are efficacious once our hearts are turned. And David has acknowledged here the power and repentance of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. We've talked about David. Mm -hmm. His son Solomon is another major figure. And Solomon early is, has this real gift of being able to be centered. Um, God says, I'll give you any gift to Solomon in, that's in 1 Kings chapter three. Um, and Solomon's answer is, is famous. We, we talk about the wisdom of Solomon, but the verse doesn't, doesn't use that word wisdom. Uh, Solomon's answer in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9 is, Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. And I love that phrase of, of an understanding heart, mm. that that's what Solomon wants, and, and the ability to separate and get anchored in righteousness. Mm -hmm. During Solomon's reign, he has this understanding heart. He's able to produce peace with, with Israel's neighbors and peace within Israel, right? There's been a lot of civil war and mm -hmm. infighting. That doesn't happen during his reign. And it says in 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 24 to 25, I'll start kind of in the middle of 24, it says he had peace on all sides round about him and Judah and Israel dwelt safely. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree from Dan even to Beersheba all the days of Solomon. Living in relatively peaceful days <laughs> ourselves, we, we sometimes can take this for granted, but it's a really great gift that, that Solomon through the Lord's wisdom was able to give the people. Can we compare and contrast David and Solomon and just how the choices they made led to each of them falling? Well, one of the motifs of the story of Solomon, and we've already identified as his heart, and he has a discerning heart, but he also has a heart that's fully committed to God. 
And Deuteronomy chapter six, it says, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Uh, Solomon through his uh, life, of course, is successful in building the temple because they're prosperous. Uh, he has the money to do this, a big, beautiful building. He also builds a big, beautiful building, which is his own palace. And we start to see that his heart uh, is a little bit um, conflicted with other kinds of things. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, the Lord told the children of Israel, he said, I will give you a king. He'll be a good king, but the king should be aware of multiplying gold, horses, and wives. And when we say the multiplication of horses, we're talking about military. If his heart gets set on other things, uh, that that can be a challenge. And at the very end of Solomon's uh, career, we learn in the scriptures that the Lord is unhappy with him because in fact, his heart hasn't been uh, undivided towards the Lord. And in chapter 11, uh, verse four, it says, came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart mm. to other gods. Solomon hasn't been altogether successful in keeping his heart single to the Lord. Uh, and that's also a problem for all of us. It's a yeah. lesson to us that over the long haul, uh, the Lord measures us uh, by who we are, uh, what we do. It's very difficult sometimes to be in that position and hold up all the way. And yeah, Solomon's heart just, just under that pressure eventually gives. Yeah. I think one of the keys of all of this is the idea of pride. And it isn't just power and wealth, but it's all kinds of things we can develop pride, which is an attitude towards ourselves, an attitude towards others where we forget uh, that God has to be our highest priority. Mm. Doug, you have a comment. I appreciate what David just said. As a matter of fact, what uh, all of you just said, I fell. And that's why I so identify with David. What happens afterwards is a whole lot of tears. A whole lot. And it's not for a night or a week. It goes for years. I was in a big black hole and I could not find a way out. And finally, I proverbially found my hand uh, grabbing on to Christ's robe. As I hung on with dear life to his robe, is the only way I got out of that hole. That's powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that, Doug. What is one of the main lessons that we can learn from Solomon that we can try to apply in our lives? Well, I think, the, I think there's really three stories here. There's Saul and there's David and Solomon. Um, as we read through these, I think we find out that anyone can fall. Mm. And if anyone can fall, I think that's a wake-up call to all of us in whatever situation we find ourselves. It's just a wake-up call. Be careful, right? Be aware. It can happen to anybody. I feel like there's so much more we can talk about within these chapters, uh, but we'll save that for footnotes. Uh, but this has been a wonderful discussion. Thank you for your comments uh, on our first topic, which is Lessons from David and Solomon. There are so many amazing temples out there, um, so it's very hard to choose a favorite. I love the LA temple because my family would go up there and look at the Christmas lights, but I also love the San Diego temple because it is in such a beautiful part of the world. 
When I was eight years old, they started doing things for the Timpanogos Temple. And so that was the temple that was closest to my house when I was growing up. And I sang as part of the primary choir to the open house, but I was sealed in the Salt Lake Temple. So I'm gonna have to say I'm, I'm tied between the two of them. Maybe it's cliche to say how much I love the Salt Lake Temple. Uh, I live right by the Salt Lake Temple. It's where I was married. Um, it's got such beautiful um, space around it. And now, of course, the, the visitor center is gone, but I remember sitting um, by the Christus statue as a teenager, feeling such a sense of peace, being right there between the temple and the statue of Jesus Christ. So our second topic is the temple is the house of the Lord. So David wanted to build a house of the Lord. He wanted to build a temple. Solomon actually built the temple. If you go and look at 1 Kings chapter 8 that contains the dedicatory prayer, if you just remind yourself, this is something they've been waiting for and working toward a long time. And in light of that, I really love some of the moments of reflection you get from Solomon as he thinks about what is this temple even, right? How does this connect? Um, if we can start with just reading a couple verses from 1 Kings chapter 8, 26 to 29. Um, Solomon starts out here saying, And now, O God of Israel, let thy word, I pray thee, be verified, which thou spakest unto thy servant David, my father. And then you have this moment where, where Solomon seems to realize, here he is surrounded by a building and he's praying to God, and what am I even doing? Because in verse 27, he says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded. I love that moment of just vulnerability. And then he goes on to say in 28 and 29, Yet have thou respect unto the prayer of thy servant, and to this supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken unto the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prayeth before thee today, that thine eyes may be open toward this house night and day, even toward the place of which thou hast said, My name shall be there, that thou mayest hearken unto the prayer which thy servant shall make toward this place. So we see Solomon here, he's built a temple, and even he is wondering, what is this really, right? Can you really fit God in a building, no matter how beautiful, no matter how great? And then he asks God, look at it, watch anyway, let this be a meeting place. So what is a temple? How do we answer that as simply as we can? <laughs> in the simplest way, David, oh, what is a temple? Way. <laughs> well, you know, in a certain sense, the Garden of Eden was a temple. It was a temple because the presence of God was there. They didn't need a building to, to celebrate that because he was there and he conversed with Adam and Eve. The first time we, we get a mention of the temple actually was the tabernacle. And it's an interesting context. You remember Moses goes on the mountain for 40 days and the people are getting nervous. They say, where's our Moses? Get us out here, abandoned us. They started building the golden calf, right? Because they want something palpable, to, a reminder mm -hmm. of, of the, has God abandoned us? And so the Lord reveals to Moses on the mountain exactly that need of ancient Israel, uh, the tabernacle, a place that God could dwell in their midst. And it was portable, which is great because they were on the move, right? But it was a portable presence of God. It's a great, great concept. But there we, we learn what temples are. They represent the presence of God in our midst. Um, that's why I love the Provo Temple. I love coming to this valley and seeing that steeple and knowing he's here, right? This is here. The Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of the covenant because our relationship with him is through the covenant. 
And then the third thing temples are is the place where we learn holiness. God said, be therefore holy, even as I, the Lord your God, am holy. And he gave them the law to teach them how to be holy. And then he gave us sacred time, sacred space, which is the temple, and the idea of worthiness to help us understand what it's like to become like him. So the temple for me is the is the pinnacle of those three principles. All right, thank you. Uh, let's ask you, imagine somebody approaches you and wants to know about our temples. How would you define what is a temple? Nicole. Yeah, one thing I would say is that temples connect us back to God and they connect us through our ancestors so that we can all return to God's presence and, and dwell with him. Do you feel like going to a temple strengthens that relationship that you have with God? Yes, I, it strengthens my understanding of, of the purpose of this earth. All right, thanks, Nicole. Anthony, please. When I went to the temple to be baptized from my father, I was really nervous because I knew he'd had a, a somewhat conflicted relationship with our church over the course of his life. So I knew it was something that I really wanted to do for him, but I, I really wasn't sure how he was going to accept that. So feeling very nervous, I stepped down into the font, and as soon as my feet went into the water, I felt this sense of peace that this was the right thing for both of us. And since that time, I've had a very different connection with my father than I ever did before. And I can feel the way that he um, is interested in what I'm doing as a father and trying to father me in the way that I'm fathering my own children. What a great experience to have. Do you find that as you have drawn closer to your earthly father through the temple, how has participating in temple ordinances strengthen your relationship with your heavenly father? As I was talking about how my dad is helping me as a dad and knowing how much he cares about the work that I'm doing as a father, I guess it really helps me reflect on what kind of care my heavenly father would have for me as a father as well. So once I was praying for my son, thinking, oh, you know, Heavenly Father, would you help him to be more like this? And the Holy Ghost whispered to me, why don't you think about yourself and take care of yourself? Well, thank you. We had a really good question from one of our viewers that I would love to uh, hear both of you, your take on it. Hi, my name is Mira. I'm from Mesa, Arizona, and here's my question. Making and keeping covenants has been a part of belonging to the house of Israel since the days of Father Abraham. Many of those covenants are associated with temple rites and ordinances. What are the similarities and differences between the temple rites, ordinances, and covenants made by ancient Israel in Solomon's temple and the ones we make in the house of the Lord today? Thank you. And that is a great question, great question. from Vera. When I go to the temple today, I have never brought an ox, a lamb, or even a turtle dove. That's so good much to hear. as a I'm turtle glad. dove. I'm glad, James. Because we don't do sin offerings and burnt offerings the way that they do. Okay. Now, I have brought 
my sins the way they do a sin offering. I have come to seek peace the way they do peace offerings. But, but obviously the, the forms of the rites are significantly different. Okay. The, the underlying purposes, that's what God wants to give us in a way that makes sense for our time and culture and this dispensation. Okay. She asked a really good question. What's the difference in the covenants? And in fact, the covenants are the same. Uh, the ordinances have changed forms for various reasons, most importantly because Jesus, uh, with his final sacrifice, put an end to blood sacrifice. But there's lots of really important principles. Temple is a place we go to go to the presence of God, and he gave us commandments to test our obedience. And sacrifice is one of those commandments uh, that we do there. Uh, James said we don't take animals there anymore, but we do take our, our names of our, of our families, which have been gained by lots of sacrifice. And certainly they didn't do work for the dead uh, before the time of Jesus like we do, right? Uh, but I think that um, there's lots of principles that are the same. And that's, that's a really interesting example because sometimes a similar function gets done different ways. So in the tabernacle, Aaron would bring, the, he had stones on his breastplate for the tribes of Israel. And he did that so he could bring their names into the presence of God when he went into the Holy of Holies, right? So it's a different way, but that idea of carrying a name into God's presence, mm. right? That stays the same. So I think we can learn a lot from paying attention even to the things that we don't do anymore. Okay. Because they're still teaching a principle that can be true. I want to hear from the audience a little bit. Um, how are you different entering the temple than when you exit the temple? Clara. I think when I go into the temple, I just have such a long to-do list in my head. You know, like there's just so many things on my mind, whether it's like college or school or work or whatever. But when you go in the temple and you get to experience that experience with like your friends or family, there's just a sense of peace you have, and it's just unlike anything you can ever experience. So when you go out, it's just, you're at peace and you don't have to worry about, I guess, what's going on outside of the temple as much, and you just come out cleansed and ready to like begin again in a sense. Clara, why do you think the temple brings those feelings? I think being able to do um, different ordinances for your family members, even if you may not know them, like personally, there's just, you're able to feel that like they're related to you and that they're so thankful for you for being able to do that for them. And so I think that's just something that you can't experience outside of the temple. I love the way the temple can be a place of connection between us and God and us and our ancestors. You get a sense of that from this chapter. Mm. After Solomon gives his dedicatory prayer, he speaks to the people. Um, and in 1 Kings chapter 8, he says, Blessed be the Lord that hath given rest unto his people Israel. According to all that he promised, there hath not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses, his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. Let him not leave us nor forsake us, that he may incline our hearts unto him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded our fathers. And I love that image of the temple being a place that inclines our hearts, that, that turns them toward God and toward, toward the fathers, those who have come before us. There's a quote I love 
from Sister Neil F. Marriott. Um, and she says, I still fight my weaknesses, but I trust in the divine help of the atonement. This pure instruction came because I entered the holy temple seeking relief and answers. I entered the temple burdened, and I left knowing I had an all-powerful and all-loving Savior. I was lighter and joyful because I had received his light and accepted his plan for me. And so the forms may have changed, mm. but I think the emotional experience of going to the temple, there probably are really strong parallels between what the children of Israel went through spiritually, emotionally, bringing their burdens, bringing their weaknesses, and coming feeling lighter and more joyful having been in God's presence. Any thoughts, David? Well, I loved what um, James said about um, them representing us in the temple, but I also love this quote. Um, in Psalm 24, it talks about what it was like to go to the temple, who shall ascend the mount of the Lord and who shall stand in his presence. And it said, he who hath clean hands and a pure heart. And temples are places like uh, Sister Marriott said that we go to measure ourselves mm. uh, against God. And in ancient Israel, they used the word holiness to become holy. Sometimes we as Latter-day Saints use the word perfect, but the goal is the same to become like God. When we measure our hands, our actions, and our hearts towards God, we find ourselves uh, lacking. And the temple is a place that has developed a system uh, to teach us about the atonement. And certainly sacrifice was part of this. In the dedicatory prayer, often uh, Solomon says, we pray towards the temple for repentance because symbols of atonement are there, the symbols of sacrifice, the symbols of washings, uh, the symbols of the olive oil uh, in the lamps and the light. These are symbols of atonement where we can come away feeling like God has made a way for us to become holy uh, through obedience to his laws and ordinances. So in that way, the ordinances are very similar in terms of their functions. The temple can be this, this psychological presence for us and a spiritual anchor that, that we know it's there, that we look forward to going. And, and that experience is part of the whole too. Yeah, I like that. I remember one time I didn't have time to go to the temple and do an entire ordinance or, you know, to do a temple session. Um, so I just drove up early and I just sat in the parking lot and I just read my scriptures and prayed for what little time I had. And I still, because I knew that there was a strength, some sort of strength that I would receive from that experience. Yeah, and in Solomon's dedicatory prayer for the temple, he touches on that sort of thing. Solomon's temple, you had to be one of the children of Israel to go in. Okay. It wasn't a temple, just anybody could go, and you had to be ritually prepared, right? There's something ancient and modern in that the temple, even if you're not at a time of your life or you're not a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, so you can't go in the temple, it's still a place where God's presence and name rests, and that you can have an experience with the temple grounds too. I'm yeah, in fact, Thank in you. the time of Jesus, they had the court of the Gentiles. Herod's temple had that court, especially set out for people like that, that wanted to be close to God. In fact, some people would even offer sacrifices to him wow. on their behalf. Just to wrap up this conversation, I wanna share a quote from President Howard W. Hunter. He says, let us truly be a temple attending and a temple loving people. Let us make the temple with temple worship and temple covenants and temple marriage, our ultimate earthly goal and the supreme moral experience. 
Thank you for your comments. Thank all of you, audience, for your comments. This has been a great discussion on the second topic, which is the temple is the house of the Lord. Come Follow Up is not just a show where we are able to talk with each other about this week's Come Follow Me lessons, although it is amazing for that reason. It also is a place where we can receive revelation on topics and experiences that we might not have ever thought of before. And I'm really grateful that I was able to be a part of this experience and it's taught me so much about what I can apply um, in my life. And I've also loved hearing from others, their experiences and getting such a, a wide variety of perspectives from Latter-day Saints. Welcome to Come Follow Up Footnotes. We wanna welcome an additional guest to our discussion today, Nick Bangeter. Welcome, Nick. Thank you. So Nick, you're a seminary teacher. That's right. Those are all the credentials you need. So it's <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> so you do teach seminary. Of course, we're kindred brothers in this. Uh, but tell us a little bit more about um, what you've done. Introduce yourself to us. Yeah, um, I, I do teach seminary. I've taught for the last few years and I really love it. Um, before seminary, I was working wilderness therapy, um, just helping troubled youth as they, you know, went through the three-month process that they did out in the wilderness. And I really loved that. And it kind of led me to what I'm doing right now. All right. Well, welcome aboard. We're happy to have you. Okay. So we've got a lot to talk about. Yeah. Well, Nick, you'd mentioned that you were interested in talking a little bit about David in the early part of his kingship right. <laughs> and how things are going before everything starts to fall apart. Um, what have yeah. you noticed? Well, right here, you know, it starts out with David, kind of it is, when we talk about his, you know, spirituality, he's at his peak. Um, <laughs> and at the start of this block, we're in chapter five and looking at verse 19, you know, he follows this pattern where it says, and David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go up into the Philistines? Wilt thou deliver them into mine hand? And the Lord said unto David, go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into thy hand. And it goes on. And David came to Bilperazim. And David smote them there and said, the Lord hath broken forth upon mine enemies before me. It just follows this pattern where David asks, the Lord responds, David does it, and he succeeds, right? And I think that that's kind of where David begins is that trust that he has in the Lord when he fights Goliath when he goes through his issues with Saul and now he's here and he's doing that. So what, where do we see a break in that pattern? When, do you, when does that start? Because something happens. Right. And you, you don't have to go ahead all that far. Um, we get to chapter 11 and right here it starts off with David's, you don't want to say fall yet. You know, at the beginning of it, it's not a fall. It's, it's a justification that you can almost give him. It starts off, and it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed all the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. He stayed behind, mm -hmm. right? And you can almost, you can almost say like, David, you, you have seen so much carnage, so much bloodshed, like go ahead and stay back. <laughs> right? But it's that first little step off the covenant path. You know, President mm. Nelson has talked about staying on the covenant path and he hasn't fallen yet. He's just kind of slipped. It starts with justification and from there it goes to cover up. And not long after the cover up, he falls and he falls really hard. Yep. 
you know, often when we talk about David and Goliath, we talk about his faith in okay. fighting Goliath. When you read the story, you find out that the reason he has faith is because he's prepared to fight Goliath. Mm. That he's smart, he has the right weapon to fight giants with. He actually does take five stones. But when I talk about this with my students, we talk about preparation. Preparation is the key to his success here. Uh, he has the courage because he's done this before. He's killed a bear, he's killed a lion with his sling, right? So when I look at this story, what I see here is that David is not prepared for this situation. Mm -hmm. And something's happened between our, our, our king that was able to inquire of the Lord and get an answer, and here he seems to be not prepared. So with David, he sees Bathsheba. Well, first, he's not where he's supposed not to be. Not where he's supposed to be. He's in the right place. He can be in his own palace, but he's there at the wrong time. Okay. Right? Okay. And it's just that, that simple little justification. He sees Bathsheba, and then after he sees Bathsheba, he looks at Bathsheba. You know, it's not a glance. He, he turns around, and he fixes his eyes on Bathsheba. And then he asks about Bathsheba. And then he asks for Bathsheba. And then he lies with Bathsheba. And then when, you know, Bathsheba gets pregnant, he suddenly has a problem where her husband is away at war and she's having a baby. So his first attempt to cover it up is to call her husband Uriah home from the battle and say, hey, I just wanted to hear how things are going. Why don't you go home and, you know, spend the night at home and then come back and we can talk. And Uriah says, I have men in the trenches. And in the end, when Uriah refuses to go home, giving him a cover as to how Bathsheba has gotten pregnant, um, he sends the order to have Uriah killed. Suddenly, he's gone from being somewhere he shouldn't be to committing murder, which is a really big fall. So much in the church today, we talk about how to avoid temptation or keep from making a wrong decision, right? And that's an important life skill. Right. But there's another important life skill, which is what do you do once you screw it up, right? Right, right. And, and I kind of feel like we should get better at transitioning between the two and saying, I'm all in on prevention while it's prevention time. And then once I'm past it, drop that skill set. That's not important anymore. What do I do now to deal with this, to find the courage to to turn things around? And, and maybe that's the thing he, he wasn't prepared for, didn't have practice with. This chapter ties in so close with, if it's okay, um, Doctrine and Covenants 121. And it gives us a list of things that will offend the spirit that take it away. But if we just look at the first one, you know, that they may be conferred upon us, it is true. But when we undertake to cover our sins, behold, the heavens withdraw themselves, the spirit of the Lord is grieved, and when it is withdrawn, amen to the priesthood or the authority of that man. Mm. And we see that as a very real reality with David. You know, there is no covering of our sins. There is no hiding them. Eventually, Moroni says, um, will you be okay standing before God in all of your nakedness? Mm. Right? Eventually, everything's going to be uncovered. And we are going to be exposed in all of the justifications that we've gone through, in all of the different ways that we have sought to cover our sins. It's going to be uncovered. And how difficult will it be to stand before God having tried to bury everything versus standing before him, having uncovered everything ourselves, saying, I, I know who I am. I know of my weaknesses, and that's why I relied on you. I don't want to hide anything from you. 
and I think that we live in a world where you cannot live without seeing things you shouldn't, mm -hmm. right? And so what would the appropriate step be? He could go to Nathan, who's his priesthood leader, and be like, just by the way, I saw this, and this is how it made me feel, and this is what I thought. And Nathan would say, David, I am so proud of you. From a parent standpoint, how do we create a, an environment or a culture in our homes where our kids will, will feel comfortable coming and talking to us and say, hey, I was on the computer, I saw this. Are there things that we're doing that is preventing those moments from happening in our own home? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a role today in just, in just initiating. You'd mentioned this idea of preparation, right? Mm -hmm. and, and if you can say, these are things that happen to people, you should be aware this is part of the human condition, right. then, then that makes it easier for then somebody, somebody to get out, right? Okay. And say that, that when this happens, I recognize this as a thing that happens to people and not something so uniquely bad that, right. that the only alternative I see is to try to cover it. Okay. Because it's right. that covering sins mm -hmm. that escalates that makes things worse. Yeah. And I used to wrestle with this a lot in my teaching and not only my teaching, but my parenting as well. At what point do I teach sin prevention. You don't want to do these things because it's going to make life difficult. At what point do I teach repentance? That if you do those things, that's why Christ suffered for us, that you're going to be okay. Yeah. The atonement of Jesus Christ was the plan all along, right? And I think that David kind of gets caught up in this mindset that I have been caught up in, that I think most people do, where you think I wasn't supposed to mess up, right? I did. And if I tell my parents, mm -hmm. they are going to be disappointed in me. They are going to be sad with me. They are going to be angry at me. They are going to take away my privileges. Where the reality is, that was the plan from the get-go, that we do mess up and we rely on Jesus Christ to get back on the path when we step away. We let people know the reality of mistakes, that that's not breaking from the plan, that it's part of the plan, and that relying on Jesus Christ is the necessity mm -hmm. in that plan. We believe that the most important thing is your relationship with God and that if you're anchored in that, you will be able to ride through some of these natural consequences mm -hmm. that come and those won't take away what's fundamental to you. But, but I guess as I'm skipping ahead, God forgives David, but God does not forgive David in a, in a scot-free, nothing bad is gonna yeah. happen way. And I think this faith of David is so interesting that on the one hand, he loved to not have the consequences, mm -hmm. but he also accepts them and trusts, right, that there'll be a reunion. And David has that long-term perspective. The story uh, teaches us, just like James said, that there's consequences mm. to, to serious sin. And for people of faith, we have to learn to accept those and there's a sense in which the story is going to sort of focus on the death of four of David's sons mm. uh, in completely different circumstances, but also related to this sin that's happened. And those four sons will be his son with, with Bathsheba will die. And then his son Amnon will die. And his son Absalom will die. And by the end of the story, Adonijah will die. I imagine that there are a lot of youth that can relate to this, this idea of, starting on a path and having it progress until you get to a point where 
you've done things that you never would have expected, you know, uh, in your life. And you feel like a wretch. Yeah, you feel horrible. And it gets harder and harder. And the further, yeah. the further you get down that road, the harder it gets to overcome those things. So are there some practical things that we can do as, as adults, as leaders, as, as husbands, fathers? How do we help people recognize where they are and stop these destructive actions? Right. I think that there will always be the fear along with sin, right? Um, and I think it's very interesting that in Doctrine and Covenants, it doesn't say if you sin, you're cut off and you've offended the Spirit. It talks about covering, right? As we talked about before, sinning, making mistakes. It was part of the plan. It was a known thing, not that God wants us to, but that he expects us to. And when you've made that mistake, you are immediately bombarded with fear, mm. right? Um, and it's oftentimes an illogical fear. If I tell the bishop, the bishop is going to hate me, right? If I tell the bishop, the bishop is going he's to... He's going to go put it on Facebook and tell everybody. Right. <laughs> he's going to stand up at the pulpit and say, brothers and sisters, I would like to tell you what Nick Bangader has done, <laughs> right? And logically, you know that that's not going to happen, right. but the fear that it will happen mm -hmm. is very, very real. And in those moments, you have to choose, am I going to act with the fear, act on the fear that I'm feeling, or am I going to act in the courage of doing what I know is right. Yeah. So, so Elder Uchtdorf gave a talk in 2007 and he talked about training for a pilot. And he said, when you train for a pilot, you have a zone of safety of how far you can go with your fuel and make it back. And he, t he teaches in that talk that uh, often when we sin, Satan tells us you're past that zone of yeah. safety mm. and you can't go back. And what we need to teach our children is that the atonement has a really vast ability to bring us back from way far away. And I've always loved Elder Hafen's quote where he says, um, the atonement gives us the power um, to have experiences and make mistakes, but not suffer the consequences of those in terms of repentance, right? Mm. So I think one of the things we need to do is teach that Satan's the one that tells us there's no way back, right? Right. Yeah. That, that there is a way back. Right. One thing that Daniel Rona was giving a fireside uh, when I was growing up, and he said in passing, and it always stuck with me, is repentance can turn sin into experience. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's profound because while you're there, it feels like this is sin forever, and I'm always going to feel this way about it, and so I might as well bury this how I can. Mm -hmm. And it takes that trust to say, okay, this is sin now. But if I repent, God's not going to forget what I did, mm -hmm. but he can convert it from sin into experience, something I can learn from that refines me, that changes me. Yeah, I would imagine it removes a lot of the guilt as right. well from the individual if instead of looking back as a sin, you're looking at it as an experience that you overcame. And I think the word isn't remove, but it transforms it, mm. right? A person who is overwhelmed with guilt, who is able to taste of the atonement of Jesus Christ, doesn't just feel an absence of guilt, they feel empowered, they feel loved, they feel capable, they feel like they really do matter, right? And so that experience that was so terrible before, so suffocating, actually becomes an experience that they treasure, mm -hmm. that binds them to Christ. I think we see this strength in David, okay. right? Yeah. That, that because he's had this experience of being bound to Christ, he's able to endure some really difficult life things because after he's repented, there's a certain anchoring for him. Right.
What's ironic about this whole story is it, it's revolving around this idea of building a temple, which is what the Lord has been constantly trying to, to give the Israelites to help them draw closer to him, to help them overcome these situations. So I think it's interesting how you have this, you know, as David is going through this, now he wants to build a house of, uh, to the Lord. How do we draw those connections with ourselves and, and just the power that temples possess in helping us overcome and receive the strength that we need in this life? Well, we talked about sin, repentance turning sin into experience. It's kind of interesting that the temple, when it gets built, gets built by Solomon, Bathsheba's son, mm. right? In other words, like in, in this narrative, the temple is built over this sin, right? Right. The sin is the base, but, but once David turns around, it's, mm. it's gonna lead to something else. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't suffer consequences, but it does mean that there can be a promise there. You know, it's interesting when you compare and contrast, you know, David and all the great things that he did versus other kings that we've seen, you know, King Benjamin, King Mosiah, and how they led, you know, and, and what the, the fallout <clears throat> from that, you know, on the other side of that coin of generations of, of righteous followers of Jesus Christ. And it just goes to show how important those little tiny stops along the way are to make those small corrections before they get too far out of hand. I think too, we need to recognize while those lives are good, mm -hmm. David's life in the end, right? Like if you're honest before God, that's not a bad life, mm -hmm. right? right? It's a harder life, but it's not a bad life. And I want my kids to know, if you're King Benjamin, right? If you're somebody who's able to maintain a life and be a righteous influence, wonderful. Mm -hmm. If there are years of your life where you live like adult King David and you confess and admit and try to turn around and live through a succession of consequences and some suffering, if your heart's right before the Lord, that's good too, mm. right? And I think we need to not be afraid sometimes to, to tell the hard stories of how people who live really broken lives can still, can still be in the right place spiritually in the end. What are some of the principles we learn uh, from both of these situations? Well, I think we actually have three situations. We have the fall of Saul, we mm -hmm. have the fall of David, yeah. we have the fall of Solomon. All three cases, they show us how great these men were mm. and then what caused their fall. There are three different ways of falling and there are three different lessons for us in our own lives to always evaluate. If David could fall, any of us could mm -hmm. fall, uh, for example. And so I think they just give us three different kinds of ways of being warned about what could happen in our own lives. Thank you. Nick, any final thought on that? Well, with that whole thing, you know, suddenly David losing the respect and the authority to teach his own sons, it took me to Jacob chapter two in the Book of Mormon, um, where Jacob is warning his people who are adopting concubines, who are having these same sexual issues. And he says, Behold, ye have done greater iniquities than the Lamanites, our brethren. Ye have broken the hearts of your tender wives and lost the confidence of your children. Right? And that seems, from what you guys were saying, is exactly what happened to David. He broke the heart of his wives, 
And he lost the confidence of his children. And without his children's confidence, they just kind of ran rampant and caused mayhem among the kingdom of Israel. So Nick, you've, you've clearly put a, a, lot of, a lot of work and labor into understanding um, David and his life. What was the genesis of your pursuit to really understanding the life of David? It actually all started with my dad. Um, I knew that David killed Goliath, and then I knew that David had his issues with Bathsheba. Okay. And I didn't know anything else. And I was talking to my dad one time, and he talked about how he was a vagabond. And I was like, wait, what? David, and he just kind of summarized in passing as though it was common knowledge to everybody. And I didn't know the Old Testament well enough to even know where to look. Do I, do I look for that in Genesis? Do I look for that in... The book of David. The book of David, <laughs> yeah. Find the book of David and, and study it there. And it was that that made me really want to learn more, to realize how ignorant I actually was of the scriptures and learn more. And so I just went to Samuel and read 1 Samuel 1 all the way through um, until I had learned enough that I felt like I knew David. And it's so painful because I feel like I really do. I feel like he's a friend. Mm. You know, I feel like he's somebody that I would get along with. And so every time you get there to 2 Nephi chapter 11, I just keep shouting at him, you know, please do something different. And he never does. He always, <laughs> he always does the same thing. Yeah. And it's painful every time. You'd asked about David and Solomon. Mm -hmm. I think Solomon has the much easier life when all is said and done. But I'd rather be David. Okay. Right? And that's because in the end, Solomon had this understanding heart. He had so much. But the last thing we get about him is that his heart has turned away from the Lord. David ruins his life. He causes all this trouble around him. But the thing God tells us about him is his heart was honest before me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think that's an interesting contrast, right? It's not always how dramatic or visible our fall is. I really do think we need to pay attention at the end of the day to, to where is our heart. And that always remains a choice to us. And, and if at the end of my life, I would rather live an easy life. But if I live a life with an honest heart like, like David's, there's something to be said for that. Thank you so much for your comments and contributions. As we've talked about our two topics for this episode, lessons from David and Solomon and the temple is the house of the Lord. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, we want to again remind you and invite you to follow any prompting that you may have had from the Holy Ghost. And please join us next week for another episode of Come Follow Up. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.